Welcome to LSE. Um, let me try and change the slide here a little bit. Uh, yeah. I want you guys to see this one. Okay, my name is uh, Elena Vieira. I am the managing editor of LSE Business Review. And for those of you who've never heard of Business Review, this is a good opportunity. We are a blog of the LSE. Um, our mission is to act as a bridge um, between research and practical business knowledge. We publish pieces that translate academic articles to a busy professional audiences, but sorry, I have to <laughs> come closer to the microphone. And also articles by business professionals about reflecting on their experiences and, and also on their company's research. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Our, ha our uh, Twitter handle is LSE for Business. We're also on Facebook and we have a weekly newsletter that I encourage all of you to subscribe to. Um, this is uh, careers and leadership are important topics that we cover at LSE Business Review, especially because we can't think of business without thinking of the people who are in it. Um, I read Rolf's uh, new book, <laughs> um, which is launching tonight here, um, The Art of Go the Good Life, Clear Thinking for Business and a Better Life. And I can tell you, you're going to be thinking, when you read this book, you're going to be thinking about what he says here for days in a row. You're going to be thinking about, oh, decisions that you've made, friends that you were attracted to, and the people that you decided to stay away from in business and in life. Um, it's going to give you, it's going to make you more sure of certain of, uh, decisions that you've made, and, and it's going to make you want to stay away from other decisions and then backtrack a little bit. Um, Rolf Dobley has an MBA and a PhD in economic philosophy from the University of St. Gallen, Switzerland. Um, he is a novelist. He has written six works of fiction. He's also a writer of nonfiction. His previous book, The Art of uh, Clear Thinking, was, a, was an international bestseller. And he's also an entrepreneur. He's, he has founded a, a networking group called World.Minds, or World Point Minds? World Minds. <laughs> Dot World Minds, OK. Um, it's an invitation-only community of, for, for thinkers, um, scientists, artists, etc. Rolf will talk to us about his new book for about 40 minutes, and then we're going to open to a Q&A from, from the audience in keeping with the LSE tradition. Um, uh, the stewards are going to be around, and they, they have microphones so that you, you'll be able to ask your questions to a microphone so that, so that everyone can, can hear your question. Um, importantly, his new book is available for purchase outside, so if you decide to buy the book, uh, then you come back and he'll be here. He'll, he'll sign the book for you. I need to say a few last, last things. Um, house rules. <laughs> for those of you who use Twitter, the hashtag for tonight's event is LSC Good Life. 
Um, please take a moment now to take a look at your phones and make sure it's on silent. Um, this evening's event is being recorded and it may be made available as a podcast. But now, uh, in off-house rules, will you please join me in welcoming Ralph Dobley. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the introduction, Helena. Um, thank you. Are my slides up? Yes. No, I need to, all, all I have to do is click. So let me go to the first slide, which is a blank slide. So thank you for inviting me. The good life. How often have you pondered this question? Seriously, how to lead a life? How to lead a good life? What makes up a good life? Raise your hands if you have done this in your life. So pretty much everybody has asked himself or herself that question. And I can't imagine going through life without ever seriously pondering this question. Now, where should we get answers? Of course, the philosophers. Now, you walk into any philosophy department at any university in this world, be it in Berlin, in Zurich, in Lisbon, in the, at Harvard, anywhere, and you go to these philosophy professors and you ask them, dear Mr. Professor, I have a question, how should I lead my life? They will look at you like you're crazy, like you're from a different planet. They've never heard that question. They're very smart people there, but they're used to discussing completely different things, like you know, what are the limits of our knowledge, or what did Wittgenstein mean on page 200 of his work? But if you ask them, how should I lead my life? They will probably send you to a psychiatrist, or a shrink. But this was different hundred years ago or 200 years ago. And if you go back to the history of philosophy, 2,500 years ago, you will see that the philosophers at that time were really interested at this question. This was the core of their thinking. How should we lead a good life? Of course, they were also debating other stuff about the limits of our knowledge, but really at the core was the question, what makes up a good life? So having no answers from the current philosophers, I went back to the history of philosophy 2,500 years, and I kind of researched everything that was there. And there are really two, um, there are a plethora of answers that you will get from 2,500 years, and there are really two extremes, and you can slot in all the philosophy of life in between those two extremes. One on one side is this here. It's maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain as a life philosophy. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, why would you want to go through life and not maximizing pleasure? It's a 2,500-year-old tradition. At that time, it was called hedonism. It is uh, very strong. Sometimes it has been stronger. Sometimes it has been less strong. But it's also one of the foundation of utilitarianism that came later, J Jeremy Bentham. And it's the bedrock of our modern consumer society. Um, you have, since you woke up this morning until you came here, you have been bombarded with roughly 500 marketing messages. And that's, every marketing message is the same. It tells you, buy my product and you will have a better life. So this is one side, uh, one extreme, it's maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The other extreme, on the other side, of all those life philosophies that we've had for 2,500 years is this. This is a picture from 1963. This is a Vietnamese monk who burns himself to death as a, at a busy intersection in Saigon. 
And he did the self-immolation in protest to uh, the regime's um, discriminatory uh, laws against Buddhism at that time. So what this guy is saying is, I'm not here to maximize my pleasure or to minimize my pain. I'm here to stick up for my virtues, for my principles, for my values. So I'm trying to maximize values, and maximizing values makes a good life. And sometimes maximizing pleasure even detracts from a good life. So these are the two extremes. And everything else that has been written and thought about the good life falls in between these two extremes. So you go from maximizing pleasure to maximizing virtues, and everything else falls in between. Now, and, and, and this, is, this is kind of the arc, uh, what falls in between. Now we know that this is probably not the ideal way. I mean, intuitively we know you can't consume your way into happiness or you can't consume your way into good life. We know it doesn't quite work that well. It makes a lot of sense to, to decrease uh, misery and to increase uh, joy and, 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 and pleasure, but it probably not is, it's probably not everything that there is. And also here on this side, there is a reason why this is not becoming a mass movement. Um, and you could seriously ask your question if this is the definition of a good life if you, uh, if you burn yourself to death for sticking up your principles. By the way, this also has a 2,500-year-old tradition. And uh, guys like Socrates who, who drank you know, that goblet with poison and killed himself, he could have escaped easily, but he stuck up to his principles and killed himself basically voluntarily. Jesus Christ is another one of those figures. Um, um, Giordano Bruno, 1,500 years later, he was tried for heresy and burned at the stake. He stuck up for his principles. And they make great movie characters, by the way, and novel characters, these people. You will never find a great hero, hero person on this side here. Somebody who, uh, who uh, maximizes his pleasure is not going to make for a good story. These make for good stories over here. But where do we stand today? We stand today with modern consumerism roughly about here. I mean, we know this is totally extreme, that there are some virtues and so on, but it's still, a still dramatically to the left. Uh, all the marketing messages, the whole economic system is tied towards maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. I found by reading all the, the, the history of, of philosophy that there's one uh, school that is very applicable to the 21st century, and that is Stoicism. Uh, it's a life philosophy that's about 1,400 years old, and it's very applicable to the 21st century. It has a lot of mental tools that work very well in this modern society, and I'll come to some of those tools later. So one of the things that I also, when I did the research for this book about the good life, and I've been doing this for the last five years very intensively, I found that there's no silver bullet. So originally I thought, okay, there must be one principle, and then you'll have a good life, um, and, and you just stick to this. And I realized, no, it's like in all the other domains of, uh, of, uh, of, of the world, that there's never a silver bullet, there's never uh, the holy grail. You look at economics, you know, you have a financial crisis, 2007, there's not just one thing you have to do to solve it. The Bank of England can't just, just reduce the interest rate down to zero and it's solved. 
there's a lot of stuff that has to come into play to solve the issue. Also, if you have a depression like the 1930s, it's not just one thing that you push. It's never just one button or one silver bullet or one lever to, to press. In medicine, you have the same thing. There's not one single pill that solves all the problems. You have different intervention for different types of illnesses and cures. If you are an entrepreneur, you know that you don't just have to do one thing right. You have to do 20, 20 things right to uh, build up a company successfully. And so it is with the good life. So what I have come up with is a toolbox of mental tools, or coming from Switzerland, <laughs> I use the image of a Swiss army knife with several different mental tools on it that you can use. Now, with the Swiss army knife, you cannot solve every problem in your life or in the world. And the same thing with, with the tools I describe in the books, you can't solve all the problems. And for each problem, there's not, you don't ever use all the tools at the same time. You usually use one or two or three tools at the maximum, but you will never use all the tools. So what I have done in the book, I've collected the 52 kind of most, for me, most convincing tools, thinking tools that help you achieve a better life. It's not going to guarantee you a perfect life and there's no perfect life, but it increases the chances that you will get a better life, or it decreases the chances that you'll have a miserable life. So let's go uh, into some of those tools. Some are simpler, some are a, more, a little bit more difficult. We'll just touch on four, five, six of those, and then we can, op we can open it up for, for Q&A. So this is one of those tools. Parking tickets. Who? doesn't mind paying parking tickets. Raise your hands. Well, I don't mind. <laughs> you don't mind. Good. Great. I really don't mind paying parking tickets. I used to be really aggravating getting one of those parking tickets. It costs in Switzerland about 30 pounds. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of money. Even if you go just for one minute to grab something in the office, you come back. Uh, the car is still there, but you have this, this parking ticket. And it, it used to make me furious. Now I have, we have, my wife and I, we have a different strategy. <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the year, we set a certain amount of money we give to charity at the end of the year, minus all the parking tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a certain amount, then the charity gets 30 pounds less, uh, and the 30 pounds go to the government, which is kind of also a good cause, so everybody's happy. <laughs> and it lowers your blood, blood pressure. Um, so right now, I don't really care if I get a parking ticket. Of course, you shouldn't overdo it. It happens maybe two or three times uh, a year that we really collect a parking ticket, but it makes you much calmer. And this is one of an example uh, of mental accounting. Mental accounting, that might be familiar to you, the term especially since Richard Taylor, the guy who just got the Nobel Prize in economics, he came up with the mental accounting. And he actually also describes this, this, uh, this trick with the parking tickets. Uh, mental accounting is, is described as actually a thinking error. Because, for example, if you find a 100 or a 50 pound uh, note bill on the street, you tend to spend it more frivolously than 50 pounds you've earned through hard work. Um, although 50 pounds is 50 pounds, so it shouldn't really make a difference. But it still does in our brain. Our brain has different accounts depending on the origin of the money and the destination of the money, and it doesn't all lump it into 
the same. So money is not equal money. It's actually a thinking error, but we can use that thinking error constructively to get inner peace, uh, like with this, with this mental accounting rule. Another one is mental accounting that we have. I used to be, um, it used to, you know, uh, piss me off, uh, <laughs> to, to, say, to say it directly. If a coffee, an espresso in Switzerland went up from two bucks to four bucks, from two pounds to four pounds, or a beer, you know, doubled in price. Well, today I set myself a limit of about five pounds, and whatever is below five pounds, I don't worry anymore. It's, it's white noise to me. And I don't consume more beer or more espresso or less espresso, depending on the, you know, the, the, the money. I just don't worry about under a certain limit. And it calms you down dramatically. I urge you to do that too. Set yourself some sort of an amount, and whatever is below that amount, treat it as white noise. You'll consume not more or less of the stuff, you will spend about the same as you would have spent, but you don't have all the toxic emotions that goes with these price increases of, of the little amounts. You know, if I look at my stock portfolio, um, it probably, the value of my portfolio probably varies every second by two pounds, but I don't get nervous about it. Um, it doesn't aggravate me. And a coffee going up by two you know, pounds used to aggravate me. It doesn't make sense. So set yourself a limit, and whatever is below, you're not concerned about it. Mental accounting is not just about money. It's also about time. I give you an example of a time mental accounting. I, when I was, was around 40, I was trying to look for you know, the question, is, is there a God? Does God exist? So I went to the monastery, a Benedictine monastery in Switzerland, for, for a couple of weeks. Um, I didn't find God, but I found a mental accounting rule in terms of time. <laughs> the nice thing about the monastery is when you eat at the dining room and you have a hundred monks there, and uh, I'm there also as a guest, there's silencium, so people don't talk while you eat. It's actually a nice thing. Uh, you don't have to do small talk or big talk, you just eat. And, but the thing is, what they have, the cutlery, the knives, the forks, and the spoon is in a little casket about this size. You open up the little casket and you take your knife and spoon and, and, and fork out when you start to eat. So, which means you are reminded and that that casket is a wooden casket, it's about 300 years old, it's a black one, it really looks like a casket and what it says is you're already dead and everything that follows now is a gift to you. So this is a good rule also of mental accounting. It's, it's a present. So this day is a gift. Actually, I should, I'm supposed to be already dead, but this is a gift. So this is a way of thinking mentally um, and, and be much more appreciative of, of, of the time you have on this planet. So this is mental accounting in terms of time. You can do it in terms of money. How often do you get asked uh, to do a little favor? So I get asked to do favors a lot. Can you, do, can you write a little article? Can you do a little talk? Can you do a little thing here? Can you help me out with this? And think about this for a moment. How often does it happen that you say yes without thinking twice? And how often do you say no when these little requests come in? And then coming back, going back once you've actually did it, how often does it happen that you kick yourself for having said yes? And how often 
do you regret having said no? When I did the statistics in my case, I realized I said yes way too often. And then I had to find excuses because I overcommitted, I couldn't do it, I was cheating myself because I couldn't fulfill the promises. I had to make up excuses, which is basically lying to other people, so I was cheating other people, and I just realized this is not a good way of, 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 of interacting with other people. And then I came across the five-second no. The five-second no is an idea from Charlie Munger. I don't know if you know who Charlie Munger is. Charlie Munger is the vice uh, chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, so kind of the, the business partner of Warren Buffett. And he's a very smart man. He's 94 years old, very smart person. He's, he doesn't write books, but he gives sometimes interviews. And I came across this five-second no in an interview. So he gives, if somebody asks him a favor, he gives it exactly five minutes, and then he gives an answer. And the standard answer is always no. <laughs> the standard answer is no. He doesn't leave people hanging, so he gives an answer, and the standard answer is no except for maybe in 1% of the cases or 5% of the cases. Actually, the, the, the real quote is this one. If you say no 90% of the time, you're not missing much in the world. For me, it's about 99% uh, of the time you're not missing much in the world. Try to do that too. It calms you down internally, dramatically. You'll have a better life. You're not cheating yourself. You're not cheating the other people. But it gives you permission to say no um, when you have that label of the five-second no there. I used to think that yes is the good word and no is the bad word. Now for me it's the other way around. No is the good word and, and yes is really the bad word. And it is it, one of those, this is probably the, the most simple tool of all the 50 tools I have in my book, but it's a very effective one. And uh, I, I, I cherish this, this, this little trick. Now, Forbes produces a list of the richest people in the world every year. And every country has a list like that. I'm sure you have in the UK a list of the richest people every year. We have a list in Switzerland of the richest people. Germany has a list. France has a list. And the question is, does money generate happiness? Does money generate a good life? And this is a question that has been solved. It has been researched and it has pretty much been solved. And there is a correlation between money and happiness. Money makes very happy, makes very, very good life if you have no money. If you're poor, every additional pound of income has a huge effect on your well-being, a huge effect. And then it decreases, and eventually you'll reach a level, in the US it's a household income of between 70 and 80,000 uh, US dollars per year, uh, in the UK, it might be roughly about 80,000 maybe or 70,000 pounds household income. And depending on, you know, this, it, in London it's a little bit more than outside of London, of course. But there is, you reach relatively quickly a level where each additional pound of income has absolutely no more bearing on, on your happiness or, 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 or on your good life. Also, if you look at it negatively, it doesn't decrease your negative emotions at all after a certain level. And you can, you can add one more pound on it, you can add a million, you can add a billion, it has no more impact on, on your happiness. And also, if you look at it from an uh, economics point of view, this is a statistic, it, it shows you 
this is actually a, uh, a slide from Japan from 1958 until about the year 2000. Here on the dotted line, you see the real GDP per capita. So real, what, what you can really consume after inflation, and it grows dramatically. And here is the life satisfaction. So every year, people were asked to rate how happy generally am I with my life from one to four. And you see it's, this is a flat line. So depend, despite the fact that we get more and more stuff to consume, that we have more and more GDP per capita, real GDP per capita, after inflation, life satisfaction stays flat. And it continues like that, even if the new statistics, even until this year. And you can take every modern country, Western country, developed country, and it's exactly the same graph. So more stuff doesn't increase life satisfaction. So we know this on an individual basis. We know this from an from a overall basis. Then the question is, after a certain amount, why does additional money not lead to additional happiness. And there are really two reasons why. Reason number one is money is relative. And it's best maybe to show this with a little fairy tale. It's a Russian fairy tale. So a uh, Russian farmer finds a magic lamp and he rubs that lamp and out of that lamp comes a genie, a, a good fairy. And she says to the farmer, dear farmer, you have one wish what would you like to happen? And the farmer thinks about it for a, a moment, and then he says, okay, my neighbor has a cow. I have no cow. I like that his neighbor's cow dies, that my neighbor's cow dies, drops dead. And that shows you a, something, an emotional reaction, which is totally stupid, and that's envy. Uh, envy is something Despite the fact that we have more and more money to spend, envy kills the whole happiness effect of more money. And there's one guy who is actually here from London, John Stuart Mill. He said it very clearly, men do not desire to be rich, only to be richer than other men. <laughs> so this is one factor. Uh, money is relative, and that's why additional money doesn't really generate happiness, because the toxic effect of envy. And then there is a second reason. And the second reason is habituation. We get used to the stuff quite fast. So you buy a new car. You know, you buy a fancy Porsche or whatever. And in the first three months, it really gives you happiness. I mean, you enjoy driving this thing. You know, people are going to be envious of you, and you, you kind of show it off. But after a while, after about three months, six months, there's habituation. You get used to it and then the effect is going to be zero, unless you really consciously always meditate on, I bought this Porsche. But who does that? I mean, and the moment you drive that Porsche, your mind is going to be anywhere else anyway. It's going to be with the traffic. You're probably going to be on the phone. Yeah, your, your thoughts are with the company uh, or, or your studies or your friends, but you're not consciously thinking of the car. So. Uh, Daniel Kahneman actually researched this subject, and he came up with a great, word, great sentence. A, a, a brand new car or an expensive car, a luxury car, makes you happy if you consciously think about the car, not when you drive the car. Because when you drive the car, the car goes in the mental background, and you get used to it. So habituation is very, very strong. Now, I talked about Stoic philosophy at the beginning. And you might have heard a few of those Stoic philosophers, the names of those Stoic philosophers. 
three names you really have to keep in mind. And these were the Roman guys, Roman Stoic philosophy. Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Seneca was a very rich business guy, very powerful guy. He was probably the Warren Buffett of the Roman times, but he was a Stoic. And you can read, and he was a playwright, and he was a beautiful writer. And you can read his, his, the stuff that he wrote, that, and it's very clear. I mean, it's, very, um, it's, a, it's got a very good style, very accessible uh, to read. Seneca is a beautiful writer. Then Epictetus is this guy. I'll come to this. Uh, actually, let me just talk about Epictetus. And, and Epictetus is, is kind of the theoretician of the Stoic philosophy. He was a slave before, so it's the contrary to the Warren Buffett, to the Seneca of the Roman times. He was a slave and opened up a school for, philosophy, for Stoic philosophy. Um, and he is a theoretician. And then you have Marcus Aurelius, and Marcus Aurelius was an emperor. So you see Stoic philosophy really applies to very powerful people, business guys, entrepreneurs, and slaves through all the classes. So this guy came up with a solution to this habituation issue, Epictetus. And, uh, and the solution is, is this. Instead of thinking about all the things you don't yet have, consider how much you'd miss the things you do have if you didn't have them any longer. So instead of thinking, oh, I would, I'd love to have that Porsche, or I'd love to have that bigger house with the two more rooms, or I'd love to have this and this. Think about what you already have, then kind of mentally subtract that you already have it, and then once you look around your life, you realize you have so much already. And this is called mental subtraction. This is one of those 50 tools. This is quite effective, so you don't fall into the trap of habituation of all the stuff you have. We can do a little exercise together, a very small little exercise. Um, if you close your eyes for a moment and just imagine that you have lost your right arm, just imagine how it would feel. You know, how would you type on the computer? How would you drive your car? How would you hug somebody? How, how would that feel? How would you eat? Just, just kind of feel how this would feel. And now, just imagine you also lost your left arm. How would that feel now? You know, how would you hug somebody? How would you, how would you navigate the world? Could you even write? Uh, could you type? No, you couldn't type. Could you paint? No, it doesn't really work. And now, imagine that you also lost your eyesight. You're blind. You're not going to see any more landscape. You're not going to see the, uh, the face of your friend, of your girlfriend, of your husband, wife, of your children. Uh, you're not going to see the paintings that are in the museum. Just imagine how this feels. And now you open up your eyes again. And look around. And you have your arms. And you have your eyesight. And it's, it's just, it feels great, doesn't it? And it gives you a, a bump in happiness, in joy, by realizing, I have already so much. And this is the effect of mental subtraction. It's almost like a ball, a ball that you press on the water and then you let it go and it jumps back up. It gives you a bump of happiness. And, that's, and that is a mental attitude or that is a mental tool that you can use to appreciate what you already have. And we already have so much in our lives that we don't need the other portion. We don't need that extra gadget anymore. We already have 
so much. So this is a very classic stoic exercise, a very powerful one, one of those 52, um, one of the toolbox of those mental tools. One more thing about money. You have to love to pay taxes. <laughs> if you don't like to pay taxes, you have a miserable life because you're going to have to pay taxes anyway. <laughs> um, and, to re and there's a way of, of, of doing this, of thinking about taxes. And I'm using here a thought experiment that Warren Buffett mentioned at one point. Just imagine you are a, a twin, one of uh, two identical twins. This is an ultrasound image of two identical twins, probably first trimester, and you see the little twins here, and you're one of those. <coughs> I've seen plenty of those pictures because we have twins ourselves, and uh, not identical, we have uh, non-identical, but just assume identical <coughs> twins. Same genetic thing as your brother or sister, so you're one of those. And the genie comes to you, a good fairy, and says, one of you guys will be born in Bangladesh and grow up in Bangladesh. How much of your future income would you be willing to give away in terms of taxes to be the one who, are, who is born in London? Think about this for a moment. Most people will f give away easily 80% of their income to be the guy who is going to be born in London instead of in Bangladesh. And, and Bangladesh will be tax-free, by the way. Um, so, this shows you the value of the infrastructure, of the luck that we have to be living in this place or living generally, in, or me in Switzerland. And, and it says that not everything is self-generated, not everything of the, the success you will have is self-generated. A lot has to do with the infrastructure you work in. And that infrastructure has a price, and that price is taxes. So be willing to pay taxes. I'm very happy after having done this mental exercise to pay my taxes. <laughs> and because you're going to have to pay taxes anyway, you might as well have a positive attitude towards taxes. This is the first commercially produced jetliner. It's the British De Havilland Comet 1. And this produced jetliner had a lot of issues. The airplane broke apart through, due to mysterious reasons in midair. So you had a lot of accidents. Actually, one airplane crashed right after takeoff in Calcutta in 1953 and 1954. This, these were the years. Uh, one went down over Elba, island of Elba. One went down over Naples, or just in, before Naples, into, into the Mediterranean. All the people died all the time, so nobody ever survived these accidents. And then they grounded the fleet. And for weeks they were researching what happened to this. Why do these airplanes crash? And they didn't find a source. And then they continued, they resumed flights. And two weeks after resuming the flights, another one crashed. And again, every, all the people were dead. That was in 1954. And then that was the final nail in the coffin of this airplane. And eventually they found the reason. And the reason is these windows here are square. And little, uh, little, cracks, uh, oh, little cracks formed at the angles of these square windows and went over the fuselage. And eventually, you know, with the pressure working on the fuselage, eventually the airplane fell apart and crashed. 
then that's the reason why today when you get into an airplane, you'll never see square windows. You will always see the round, round windows, so those, uh, those, little, um, those little cracks don't form. But there was a way more uh, dramatic discovery during uh, that process. One of the investigators, David Warren was his name, had an idea. And he said, why don't we install an almost indestructible flight data recorder on every airplane? that records all the movements of the airplane, of all the sensory information, that even records the sounds and the voices between the pilot and the co-pilot and, and, and central control. Because when it crashes, then we can really go back and analyze in detail what happened. And this idea was brilliant. This idea led to much, much bigger airline safety, much higher airline safety than, than before. And every crash today of an airplane increases the chances of the future flights because you can analyze in detail what was it that really uh, caused this crash. And the airline business, funny enough, is the only industry that does this. You can look at any other industry and when people make a mistake, you have an M&A transaction that goes down or you have a hiring that doesn't work out or you do some other project, you have a marketing project that, that doesn't work out, people tend not to go back and analyze the issues. People think, well, the future is up here, let's just work on the future, forget the past. If you don't rub your noses in your mistakes, then you'll never find the causes and you'll repeat those mistakes. And that also counts for the private lives. So if you can't identify your mistake, you're going to repeat it. So one of the 25, or one of the 52 mental tools is to have a kind of a flight data recorder for your own life. And the flight data recorder doesn't have to be a box, it can be a piece of paper. So whenever you take a big decision, write down your assumptions, write down your thought process. Uh, it doesn't have to be a long essay, it can be just a few words, what you really thought about it. And when it goes, when you realize that you've made a mistake, and you're gonna make a mistake, and made, I made tons of mistakes in my life, but then I can go back and analyze what were my assumptions at that time, and really investigate what did I do wrong. And by learning from your mistakes, you decrease the chances that you're gonna make them in the future. It's psychologically hard to do that. It's psychologically difficult to rub your noses in your own, your own mistakes but I urge you to do it because you'll get better at doing the life thing than not doing it. You will learn your weaknesses, and when you learn your weaknesses, you can find ways to circumnavigate those weaknesses in the future. It's a flight data recorder that doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't consume time or barely any time, but it's highly effective to lead a better life because you can learn from your mistakes. And then, of course, you can also learn from other people's mistakes. It's actually more elegant to learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, you get the silver medal uh, when you learn from your own mistakes. You get the gold medal if, if you learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, there also, you have to analyze and really go back into detail uh, what other people did wrong, and you, you can learn from that. Life is not an easy thing. Life is very complicated, and you have to know your weaknesses to be able to navigate yourself to, to this difficult thing. Well, this, this going back is called a post-mortem. So you crashed, you analyze your mistakes. Again, I urge companies to do this way more often than they do it. The airline business is the only one that they do it. And I urge you privately to do it. But there's another one. Oh, sorry. 
That's a pre-mortem. You can also do a pre-mortem, which means before you crash, you think about all the things that could go wrong, and then try to find solutions so they don't, uh, you don't, don't, they don't happen. It's called a pre-mortem. Again, some companies do it, but very few companies do it. Privately, can, you can also do it. I do it from time to time. I, I ask myself, okay, my, um, the marriage just broke apart. Why could this have happened? I just assume my marriage broke apart. And then I analyze why this could have happened. And then I try to uh, solve those problems. And my marriage is intact. But just to think about the pre-mortem helps me to have a better marriage. It helps me to find solutions so it never bec will become a problem. And you can do this with all the, life, the big life decisions. And that's an idea, again, from our friend, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. He calls this premeditatio malorum. It's a meditation on the bad things that can happen in life. If you meditate on the bad things, you'll have a better life. I know it's counterintuitive. You always think you have to think about the positive sides in life. You have the happy, joyful things. No, think about all the bad stuff that can happen in your life, and then decide what you can do about it and what you can't do about it and then you'll have a much better life because you're much calmer inside. And the Stoics had this image of an archer. You know, you have the bow and the arrow. You will try to do everything that's possible that you can control. So what you can control, you should control. So you can control your bow and you can control the arrow and you can stand very, you know, straight and, and, and not shake. But the moment you let that arrow go, it's out of your control. You cannot control it anymore. It, the arrow could break during flight, it could be, the wind could blow it off track, uh, it could fly into something else. You don't know, you don't have it under control. And one of the big things in, of one of the big mental tools in the toolbox, especially the stoic toolbox, is when you worry and you do this premeditatio malorum, think about the stuff you can control and, and and really make a difference to, or, or you know, set it apart from the stuff you can control. You cannot control, you cannot control, for example, the question, will the stock market crash next week? We just don't know. We have no idea. It can, it might not, so don't worry about it. You cannot worry about it. How will the summer be? Will, the, will my football team uh, win the championship or not? There's nothing you can do about it. You can't control that, so don't worry about it. On the other hand, what the stuff you can control, you should really address and control. And once you do this separation and you work on the stuff you can control, your worries, your anxieties will go down dramatically. It's not going to go down to zero, but you'll stop worrying uh, in, in a big way. And the feeling you will get with all these 52 mental tools is a feeling that the Greeks called ataraxia. It's kind of a peace of mind an inside peace of mind, it's internal calmness, it's, uh, it's equanimity, and you, will be you are bombarded with crazy stuff from the outside world. But if you stay inside and you have an inner, uh, inner uh, castle or an inner fortress that is, stays steady, you have, uh, you, have a good, um, you have a good setup for a good life. So the, the world will bombard you with opinions, with news, with, with problems. But if you have that inner fortress, that way of staying calm, you will make better decisions for your life. 
and you'll actually have a much better life. So the brain is, to sum up, the brain is a wonderful organ. And the brain has created the iPhone, it has sent us to the moon, the brain has developed self-driving cars, and it's all wonderful. But the brain is also responsible for the misery that we have in our lives. Of the toxic emotions like envy, self-pity, the worries, the, the, the brain is also responsible for wrong expectations we have, to the we have uh, on ourselves or on the world. The brain is also responsible for wrong views about the world, incorrect views about the world. So the 52 mental tools I have address kind of the negative side of the brain. If you can get those under control, then the upside will take care of itself. And with this, uh, with this Swiss Army knife of 52 tools, again, you will not have a guaranteed perfect life. Nobody has a perfect life. Life is hard to lead, but it increases the chances that you'll have a good life. So I'll just leave you with this because it has a good title. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rolf. That was very inspiring. I said I wouldn't ask a question to let uh, people ask questions, but I have this burning question in my mind. If you guys allow me, I'll, uh, I'll ask this first. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time on my question. Um, I was thinking of, of uh, my previous life, and, and it must, must reflect a lot of people's lives. When you're in working in a corporation and there's pressure, there's competition, and it's either you get promoted or, or you get left behind, and, um, and then you advocate for modesty. If, you, if you're modest, you're not going to get anywhere in, in an aggressive environment in the corporate world. Like how, do you, how, do you, how do you deal with office politics, with the pressure of people saying terrible things about you, and you don't have time? You have a lot of work on your desk. And, and you worry about, worry about your promotion, your friends are getting promoted, and you're being left behind. How do you, how do you balance all of these pressures? Well, there's a lot of toxic, toxic emotions here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one of, one of it, okay, the friends are getting promoted, and I, I don't get promoted. So that's the, that's the envy part. So we envy people. We have to understand how envy works. So envy is one of the modern diseases that we have. And, um, and envy works, you will compare yourself with people who have a similar job or a similar study like you, who are a similar age and, and, and work in roughly the same, or live in roughly the same neighborhood. So you will not, as a, you know, you will, as a, as a let's say, a dentist, you will not be envious of, of, uh, of somebody who is also a great dentist, but makes 10 times the amount of money on the other side of the globe. It just leaves you cold. But if your neighbor is a dentist and he makes 10 times the money, that really drives envy. So it's, it's physical proximity. It's the same job and roughly the same age. Um, I used to be envious um, of, of other writers who are more successful than I am. Um, but I was never envious of Roger Federer. He's from Switzerland, too. He's about my age. But it's a different category. Okay? <laughs> it's, it's tennis. I can't go. It's, it's funny how envy works. So it, it really, once you know how envy works, you can consciously not compare yourself with people who have the same job and who are roughly are in your neighborhood and have the same age. Consciously not do that. It's, it's hard. It takes a little bit of practice, but you can get rid of that. Another 
um, reason why, how you can control envy. There are a couple of tricks also in my books. My book. One is the focusing illusion. Uh, when we compare ourselves to other people, we usually compare it on one dimension. So we take one aspect of their life and make it really big. So I have a small car, the other guy just bought himself a huge Porsche or whatever, and I think that Porsche really makes the guy's life dramatically different. And that's the focusing illusion. Because if you look at the moment-to-moment -moment life of my neighbor, that Porsche doesn't really matter. His moment-to-moment -moment life doesn't really have a big effect on his life. He, he has his toothaches and he has his arguments with his friends or his wife and he thinks about death and he's afraid of old age and he has his stress and whatever. And that little Porsche that sits there has almost zero effect on his life. But when we compare, we make that one factor really big in our head and once you know that effect, you can, you can decrease mm. that amount. And then, if I may, just do a little excursion. Once you realize also that Chance, randomness plays a huge part in our lives. So you can say the guy was just lucky to be more successful or the guy was just lucky to have 10 times the salary than I, that I have. Um, I know this doesn't come across right when we say luck plays a huge role because we always think, no, no, it's, it's really it's us that drive success. It's, it's, it's up to us to be successful. If we want it, we can change the world. We can build this corporation. No, it's not true. It's really not true. A lot of it is, is, is randomness. Look at your IQ. Your IQ is genetically determined. IQ plays a huge role in today's society. Play, makes a huge difference if you're successful or not. Your income depends on, on IQ dramatically. In the past it wasn't the case. In the past it was muscles or how fast you could run. It was other things, but not IQ. IQ is is genetically determined, you had no influence on, on your gene composition. You didn't pick your parents, and you didn't pick the way that those DNA strands put together. So you have it, since you're here at LSE, uh, you have, you're the lucky winners of the uh, uh, IQ lottery, um, us too, but there are a lot of people who are just, are not the lucky winners. You didn't pick your parents, by the way, also in terms of how they, you know, the, the, uh, how, how they raised you. you c I could have easily fallen into a family that of, of, of drug addicts or people who are sitting in front of TV and, uh, and are, are uh, ho homeless people or whatever. I, I was lucky to be brought into a family of hardworking, really wonderful parents. I didn't pick my parents. I didn't recruit them. I didn't have a recruiting process. Um, <laughs> and pure luck. Also, the luck that you were born into the you know, 20th or 21st century uh, is a great, I mean, we have a great time. We could have easily been, you know, fallen into the, the, the 30 years war time. Or the fact that you were born in, in Britain and not in Bangladesh or North Korea or Yemen could have easily bore, be born in North Korea. But you'd be born into this society, which is a great society, or Europe generally. So a lot of it has to do with chance, with randomness, with luck. And now you say, well, but the success I have, you know, this doesn't come from nowhere. I can't just sit in front of TV and then I have my success. Of course not. You need willpower to do it. But where does willpower come from? 
Think about it for a moment. Where does your drive come from? Your drive is partly genetic. We know this from psychology. Part of it is genetic. There are some people who just don't have that much willpower. Some people generate willpower much more easily. And then a second factor is also the role models you had in your youth. And again, you didn't recruit your parents. You had your role models. And willpower also has to do with chance and luck and randomness. So the, the belief that we can do whatever we want and it's, all, it's only us who determine the future is not true. The, 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 the chance and the, 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 the component of, of, of luck is huge in our lives. And that also decreases envy. So we can just say the guy is lucky who has uh, 10 times the amount of money. All right. Um, let's open for questions from the audience. Uh, I'll be taking three questions at a time. That way more people can ask their questions. This gentleman here. Oh, Hello? Before, before you ask a question, please make sure there's a question in the end. <laughs> Some people <laughs> forget the question mark. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, do you hear me? Hello? Yes. yes. Uh, so I'll save you some time. I have two questions. Um, so first of all, Rolf, thank you very much for very interesting presentation. That was very useful. I, I will use some tips even today. And um, <clears throat> the, my first question is, uh, where is love? You, all, all of your philosophy is based on, on fortress kind of principle. So life is pushing on me. I'm defending myself. I self-preserve myself and stuff. But how you can talk about good life without love? Right, that's the first question. The second question, uh, what is the purpose of good life? Oh, okay. Yeah. Another, can you, yes. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I have a question more on measurement of happiness. You were talking about uh, some of the studies that use, you know, these surveys that ask someone, are you happy on a scale from one to four, and then they use that to measure happiness. So what do you think about uh, this measurement? Do you think it's a good way to measure it? Are there other ways to measure it, and what do you think is the best way? If you think it's a good way, does that mean that Bhutanese citizens have your Swiss Army knife, and that's why they're the happiest in the world? Or? Yeah, yes, please. Um, I'll, I'll go, um, I'll go there uh, next. Yes. Many thanks for your presentation. Uh, my question is, are there any unintended consequences if everyone or most people start living the good life? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, the first question is, where is love? Yeah. Um, good life without love? <laughs> yeah, I mean, love is usually important but you cannot force it you cannot really force love it even either happens or it doesn't happen but you can appreciate if it's here so this is also one of the let me give you an answer on again from from Epictetus I love my children and my wife of course but let me talk just talk about my children um, we have two little twins and when I kiss them goodnight and put them to bed, I always tell myself, and that is straight from Epictetus, this is not my child. This is on loan from the universe. And the universe can take it away any moment. 
it might not wake up alive tomorrow. And when you think about this, the fragility of life and the fragility of love, you will experience it much more, much more strongly. I know it's, it sounds like a brutal thought of thinking about the death of your own child, but it makes you appreciate much more what you have. Again, it goes back to almost the, the mental uh, subtraction idea. So I kiss uh, one of my boys or, uh, you know, and put him to bed, and I say, this is on loan from the universe, it's not my child. Um, so this is kind of the love thing. I, I don't believe you can force love, but I don't know any studies on how we, if you can push love or, or not love. I don't think there are, I don't know of any of those studies. The purpose in life. There is a big purpose and there is a small purpose. Um, and I, I, I differentiate between the two. One is, what is the purpose that we are here on the planet? You know, what is the purpose of the universe? What is the purpose of, you know, of life generally? You know, science hasn't found a purpose. Um, there's no purpose that you can dissect anywhere. It just happens, it's an evolving process from the Big Bang on and it just kind of evolves. So there's no purpose in the universe. But there is a small purpose, I call it small purpose, and it's the purpose you set yourself in life. These are your life goals. Um, it's good to have goals in life. It actually helps you attain those goals, but you should not be chained to your goals. Again, um, there is a, there's a great study out there. They asked people, uh, students, how important is income or financial well-being, financial success in your life? And those people who have given, uh, as students, who have given a high rating, you know, that's very important to me, they actually, with a much higher degree, achieved um, those goals. They were much richer, they had more wealth 20 years later. But, and here comes the but, those guys who gave a high rating, you know, this is important to me and didn't achieve it, were miserable. So you shouldn't chain yourself to the goal. Um, you should be kind of flexible when you set goals because once you chain uh, yourself, you set yourself up for misery because again, the, the, the role of randomness and chance is huge in life and it might just play against you and then you're gonna be, feel miserable for the rest of your life. So that's kind of the purpose discussion. How do you measure happiness? There are two measurements, happiness. Um, and they totally contradict each other. <laughs> One is the general life satisfaction. So you ask people generally, overall in your life, how satisfied are you with your life? So people reflect back on their lives and kind of make, make a mental, make, mental calculation. Overall, I'm a four out of 10 or, you know, this was a one to four, so I'm a, a 2.7. That's one way of, of, of asking the question. Then there's a second way of asking the question is, at the moment, how happy are you? And that, is, that gives you a completely different reading. So the, the technique, how it usually works, is you get pinged with a, with a text message and you type in your score at the moment, how you feel at the moment. And that moment-to-moment -moment feel is usually lower than the overall feel. It's funny, but it's, it's just as it is. That's usually a lower score. Now, which one, which one counts now? Is, is the moment-to-moment -moment happiness? Daniel Kahneman calls it the experiencing self. Is that the right measurement stick? Or is the overall, how happy are you generally with your life, the right one? We don't know. There's not, we don't know which one is more important. But we know when we look back and we kind of analyze our lives, generally how happy are, are we, 
we tend to project a lot of stuff in it. So we make up a lot of stories about ourselves and we kind of sometimes lie to ourselves. Uh, and the, the, I would say that the moment to moment is, is more truthful, but again, it doesn't tell you much about an overall structure. So these are the type of things and it hasn't been reconciled. And I don't think there's a way to reconcile it. And the, the people in Bhutan. Um, people in Bhutan are very happy, but you must know that in Bhutan you have a, a, a two-tier society. You have immigrants from India who do all the dirty work. All the road work that is being done there. Uh, you have an underclass in Bhutan who does all the dirty jobs. And of course you can be super happy if you're Bhutanese and you can be very high on the thing, but you should also consider uh, everybody who lives in Bhutan, and those statistics usually don't consider everybody who lives in Bhutan. Actually, if you look at OECD countries, there's a statistics, and every year that statistics is updated of all the OECD countries, the happiness, the general happiness, how ha generally happy are you? And it's usually the Scandinavian countries and Switzerland that are on top. And there's a professor, uh, Bruno Frey, uh, he's a Swiss guy who actually started the economic happiness research, and he found it's very much tied with how much influence you have on a political scale. So those countries, it, it's one factor of many factors, but it has an impact of how directly can you affect society and how directly can you affect um, policies as an individual. If you have more control over it, like we in Switzerland, we, get, we, we have to vote on everything every week. We have something to decide. Um, you know, should, should, he, should, he plant a, you know, should he plant a tree here in the city or should he plant it over there? I mean, we continuously being asked to, to vote on stuff. But it gives you a sense of, 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 of control over the direction of where society goes. And that is a very strong factor that makes for a good society or happy, happy people. Um, that's good. Um, yeah, let's go. No, the uh, unintended consequences. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's oh, a very sorry. brilliant, that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliant. What if everybody has a good life? Um, I, I would love to have. I would love to have that. Just imagine you would have a life, a, a society where everybody is humble, doesn't have a big ego. It would make for a very robust society. I would love to live in one of those. Um, seriously, I'd, it would be a good one. Okay, so let's uh, let's take questions from upstairs. Let me see. There is a, a woman in the back. Yes. Thank you. I was just wondering. I really don't mind paying taxes. What what I mind is when other people don't, and when they use elaborate legal and other routes to not pay those taxes. And what's the the toolbox? What's in the toolbox for dealing with that kind of thing? Or is it just you have to be in action to make a difference in that regard? Okay. Yeah, there's a uh, man here. Um, so in order to use the uh, mental models you've spoken about, you need to have uh, or to be self-aware uh, that your view uh, or is wrong or your decision could be wrong. So how have you become self-aware to use the tools that you are prescribing? And then a sneaky second question is, uh, who or what books have uh, influenced your writing around decision-making and mental models? Okay. And then, oh, a lot of people. There's a gentleman here. 
in front. Thank you. Um, there's, there's been a lot of talk in, in the business world around business psychology about being world-class and continually developing and growing. And it's a journey rather than a destination. But what mental tools can you recommend to deal with the constant failure of not being perfect? <laughs> Very interesting questions. Great. OK, on, on taxes and cheating on taxes. Um, you know, I come from Switzerland, and Switzerland has been uh, one of the drivers on cheating taxes internationally. Um, we've changed. Uh, now you can't, you know, you, you can't do the game anymore, and, and the banks really don't ha have to find different income streams in Switzerland. Um, but there's no, not one single, I mean, there's not a mental tool for it. There's only regulation for it. So you need policy decision, you need enforcement that people can cheat on their taxes. Um, th th the thing is that there are so many loopholes in almost every country when you have a certain income and you have a certain, um, a certain if, you have if you have a corporation, a you know, a private corporation and you do it through a corporation, there are so many loopholes that you can still optimize kind of taxes or cheat on the taxes. I think we just have to close this. It, it, takes some, it, it costs money to close these things, but I think the net effect will be financially beneficial to the country. And, and second of all, it will, be, uh, it will be fair. You know, we are used to, from a mental point of view, we have a hunter and gatherer brain. We have a Stone Age brain. And the Stone Age brain is, is made for a almost um, egalitarian society. We used to live in, in small groups of about 50 people hunting and gathering. And we were extremely egalitarian. So we were used that this makes us happy, which means if some people, rich people, cheat on their taxes, and they're extremely rich on top of it, and then cheat on their taxes, um, this really gets into our, on our nerves. And there is a reason for it, and that's the Stone Age brain of, 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 uh, of having a very um, equal society at the time. Um, I had uh, lately, in, in Switzerland, you, you can move from canton to canton. You have these areas. And the tax differences are huge. Generally, people, uh, you can pick and, 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 and move uh, to a, a very ugly place and pay almost no taxes. Um, and a lady came to me a few weeks ago and said, you know, I moved to this and this place. It's really ugly. I moved to this and this place. And I'm going to save 5 million taxes per year, you know, 5 million pounds of taxes per year. I'm like, OK. So if you, have, if you can save 5 million in taxes, you have enough money to live at a nice place. I mean, you only have one life. You know, what kind of calculation is this to optimize taxes? And then you live in, in, in Riyadh, where you pay no taxes, or in, in, in Monaco at some concrete building. Uh, what kind of life conception is that? You know, uh, being, having, a, having a really bad environment, having an ugly environment to save some, some bucks. So I, I think um, a lot of people over, overjudge the importance of taxes. You basically just pay those taxes. And, and if you can pay the taxes, you know that you're, you're lucky enough. You have the genetic composition. You have had the success. You have had that component of luck. So, by all means, just give it to the guys who are born with 
less fortunate genes into the less, you know, into a, into a household that is not as fortunate, into the wrong zip code, you know, they by all means give some money. What I don't like with taxes if if they are spent in a inefficient way. So if bureaucracy bureaucracy eats up a lot of it, so it has to be spent in an efficient way, from my point of view. Self-awareness. How can you be self-aware of these 52 mental tools, mental models? It's it's it helps to know those labels, and I've tried to make those labels that stick. You know, five second, uh, uh, you know, five second no, you kind of snappy titles. It helps to have those snappy titles in your head, and then you will recognize which tool you can use. If you don't have the labels, it's kind of hard. And I've done the same thing with my previous book, The Art of Thinking Clearly, where I have kind of snappy titles for those biases, and it helps to 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 know them. So those titles help, and then of course it's a matter of training. You know, I'm not perfect with these 52. Um, I am by far not, have not achieved ataraxia, I'm not the perfect inner fortress. But by doing it, you get better every year. And uh, I know I'm not going to achieve it 100%, but I'll get better every year. Now, the positive influences on, on this, well, it's the Stoic philosophers, but then also I quote a lot Charlie Munger. And Charlie Munger actually came up with the term mental models. I use mental tools, but he came up with mental models. He calls, he calls it a lattice work of mental models. You, when you look at the world, there's never one, one single perspective to look at, the right perspective. You have to look at it from different venues. You have to kind of have models to interpret the world from different domains. And I love Charlie Munger's uh, conception of mental models. I think model is the wrong term. Because with models, I think, you know, an architecture model of a city, you make it small. So it's kind of the wrong term. But the idea behind it is, is brilliant. So that's Charlie Munger's. And I have a lot of brilliant stuff from Charlie Munger in the book. I just love the guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a modern Stoic. So he, he's truly a modern Stoic. <laughs> and then what was the last question? Constant, how do you deal with the constant failure of uh, not being perfect? <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your life will never be perfect. You just know this. I mean, eventually you'll come to realize your life is not going to be perfect. Life is tough, and shit is going to be thrown at you, and you will make tons of mistakes all the time. You will never be perfect. Just accept it. You can get incrementally better, but you'll never re reach that perfect level of, you know, I'm the perfect entrepreneur, I'm the perfect CEO. No CEO is perfect, no entrepreneur is perfect, no person has a personality is perfect. We will make mistakes and life is hard enough and um, just accept it. <laughs> That's good. Let's, let's get another three questions. Okay, I'll get uh, one from upstairs, another from downstairs, and then we'll, uh, that way everyone has a chance. So um, there's uh, the gentleman in the back. Checking the mic here. Can you hear me? Yes. You know Warren Buffett does one million, two million, three million. I know. Yeah. Okay, so Warren and Charlie, you've obviously based a lot of your uh, thoughts on those two. Um, Warren Buffett, um, I think he said to himself, think of three heroes and then model your life on those three heroes. And I think they're Benjamin Franklin, his father, and Benjamin Graham. Who are your three heroes and why did you choose them if you have, have you haven't, maybe you haven't chosen them, but. You're going to have to choose them tonight. 
Um, okay, so this uh, woman here. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, it's very interesting you mentioned about lots of research about the correlation between happiness and money. I just wondered, uh, what about power? How much power can you get to be happy? And assuming power and money are not necessarily exactly the same thing, so it will be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Very interesting. <laughs> and then let's get someone from here. Um, yeah, there's this gentleman in the back over there. Um, I was just keen to understand, what would be your mental tool for finding your passion within your career? Very interesting. <laughs> uh -huh. OK, on the question of the heroes, um, it's true uh, Warren Buffett said, tell me your heroes, I tell you how your life is going to be or, or what kind of person you're going to be. I don't think it works that way. Uh, again, because you have a certain genetics, makeup, and so on, um, and, uh, and you have certain parents. Um, but um, uh, Charlie Munger has had a big influence on me. Um, he is, heroes is too strong of a word. I don't have really heroes. But I have strong influences, and Charlie Munger has been one of the, the things. I would say somebody who comes close to a hero for me is my wife. And she comes from, she's German. She comes from a family that was extremely poor but hardworking. Uh, on the 20th of the month, they didn't know if they were going to make it to the 30th of the month with the money. The kids have to work. She has, uh, she has a sister who is, uh, who is, who is mentally um, uh, disabled. It is, but she is extremely, she's an extremely tough woman. And, and she's in the middle of life. And the way she approaches life is, is tremendous. So she, I, I really, she's one of, she's probably my biggest hero, is my wife. And then I could tell you a lot about lots of philosophers, uh, Marcus Aurelius, as a, as a leader. I mean, just imagine it. He's, he was almost, he was almost, um, he almost didn't want to be an emperor. I mean, it's the, the most powerful guy on, on the planet. But he always told himself in his meditations, at the end of the day, he wrote notes to himself, they call, they're called meditations, that he shouldn't have an ego about it. He should be humble about it. And he always asked himself, how can, I, how, can I, you know, how can I be fair to the other people? How can I be a good emperor? How can I not get it into my head that I'm emperor, that I'm this powerful guy? And if you read the meditations from Marcus Aurelius and read them, it, it's a very small booklet. You can read it in one hour, the meditations. And they're not made for public. They, they, they were not, you know, he didn't want them to make public. He really made them for him for himself. And you will see that this is strong leadership I totally admire. If you have that much power and you're so humble, and that is, that is, that is great. Uh, and then here we come uh, straight to, to power, power and happiness. I know of research that looks at how much can you control your own life and, and happiness. So the more autonomy you have in your own life, the more happy, the happier you are. I don't know of any research that looks at power, how powerful are you and how happy are you. I don't know of any research that way. But the more autonomy you have in your life, the more happiness generally you have. 
And it looks, and one of those strands of, of research is looking at people who are employed, who are somewhere in middle management, compared to people who are self-employed, who have their own jobs. Usually those self-employed people make about half the amount of money, but they're much happier because they have the autonomy to say no to a certain client or to take on another project. So autonomy is hugely important. Power, I really don't know the research. Passion. Passion is a, is a, is a term that's completely overused in our society. So we look at, okay, I have to look into myself and, and I'll find that golden figure inside myself that shouts and that knows exactly what I'm going to have to do and I just have to be passionate for this golden figure and then, he, then eventually I'll achieve it. If you look into, inside yourself, you'll find chaos. Uh, you won't find that golden figure that tells you exactly what to do. And everybody who says, I followed my passion and I was su successful is probably back, you know, is, is probably uh, doing a backstory backwards and interpreting it that way, but it, it was just pure, pure luck. So it's better if you look at your skills that you have. Where do you have skills that are extraordinary? And then follow those skills and develop those skills. Uh, and, and develop your, and again, it's a Warren Buffett term, your circle of competence and stay in that circle of competence. So go by your skills. You know those skills, they're much more easily to determine than looking inside and finding that inner voice and then following that inner voice. That leads to nowhere. <laughs> Any more questions? So we have the last round of questions now. Um, yeah, there's uh, a woman here in the back. <laughs> Hi, thank you for the very interesting talk. Um, you mentioned the word equanimity. Um, I wondered if you'd looked at meditation and equanimity, and if so, if you'd um, narrowed down to any specific kind of meditations that helped attain that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, there's a gentleman here in the middle. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, just wanted to ask, so a lot of it is about being positive, and I think you also said the how lucky we are with our genetics. Some people are optimistic, some people are pessimistic. So my question is, as an optimist who's, who's never dealt with depression, if you, if you meet someone who, who is depressed, which everyone who has been depressed describes it as you can't understand it unless you've been depressed, who, they don't have much they don't see much joy in life. You suggest things that make you happy, but they don't seem to get any enjoyment out of it. How do you, can you help someone who's depressed? And in, if so, how do you go about it? Right. Thank you. Question from here. This gentleman uh, here. Thank you. So actually my dad and I, we used to discuss the art of thinking clearly quite often in, you know, just random discussion. And, you know, you mentioned the five second no. And because I'm a university student and I don't have too many experiences in life. So I'm just wondering, do you believe that the tools need to be utilized in a different way, depending on the stage of life you're in? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, these are great questions. Equanimity and meditation. 
I don't do meditation. I used to do meditation. And maybe I didn't do it right. Um, but meditation works while you meditate. But as soon as you come out of meditation, at least in my case, um, the whole craziness of the world came back very quickly. <laughs> it was nice to meditate for an hour, but as soon as I got out of it, uh, it, it didn't stick. It didn't, the effect didn't stick. And what I learned is by using those 52 uh, mental tools, they, they stick stronger than meditation. Maybe I did do it right. Maybe I didn't pick the, a good meditation teacher or big meditation uh, tactics or strategy. Um, but I think for me, the 52 work better than meditation. I know, I know meditation is all in, in vogue right now, um, but yeah, I, I never found it. I found it with the, with the, with the 52 better. Uh, positive thinking and, and depression. Can you help somebody with depression? You can, you can use these tools um, to a certain degree, meditation, but after you go down a certain level, you have to have medication. Um, if, you, if, 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 you know, if you have a depression, just the beginning of a depression, you can do something with uh, CBT, um, which is kind of a stoic tactic, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, that uses the way you look at the world in a constructive way and then helps the people to get out of meditation. And it's one of the interventions that has been proven to work. But if you go below a certain threshold, you cannot rationalize with people anymore. You cannot use these uh, interpretations of yourself or the world, and then you need meditation. Um, and then usually people can go back up. And then at the certain level, then you can come in with, with CBT again, with cognitive behavioral therapy. And the stages of life. If you're that young, you're going to make tons of mistakes, and that's good. <laughs> So, um, and do those mistakes because you'll get a feel for the world uh, and, 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 and really do it. I think after a certain age, like me, I'm, I'm 51, um, I should do less mistakes than, than when I was your, your age. <laughs> and I'm trying to do fewer mistakes and uh, I think I can do it right now a little bit more. But if I look back when I was young, I was making so many stupid decisions, but you know, who cares? It gives you flavor of, of, of life. I think people ask me at one point, when should I read the book? You know, what is a good age to read the book? I always say, so starting at about 30, <laughs> the, the age of 30, you should read my book. And below that, just do your mistakes, have fun. <laughs> this is wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Rolf. Thank you Very so much. much. Thank you.